Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King. My name is Peter Schwanda, and I serve as a deacon here. And as was mentioned, this is Christ the King Sunday, or for the full title, the official title of, of today's ceremony, The Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. I think Paul would like that better, because as he writes in Philippians, Jesus is exalted by God and given the name above every name. We worship Jesus as our king today. Not just today on this last Sunday in the church here, but every Sunday and indeed every day. This is fitting for this to be Christ the King Sunday. It's our last Sunday in our sermon series on the king and his calling. Jesus, our king, calls us with authority. We have covered how he calls us to simplicity, to authenticity, to responsibility, to intentionality. Our king also calls us to maturity, that is to grow to be like Christ. Our king calls us and he also knows us. He knows that we are works in progress. And so he uses his Holy Spirit and his Holy Word to encourage us. In fact, one of the names for the Holy Spirit used in the Gospel of John is the paraclete from the verb parakaleo, it means to encourage. The Holy Spirit is the encourager. And in God's word today, especially in our passage in Philippians, we find great encouragement as we continue to grow as Christians. I went running yesterday. This should not be impressive because it was painful. It was painful because I am out of shape and it was painful because there was a time when I was not out of shape. Once and just once, I ran a marathon, and I'm convinced that it was only because of the encouragement along the way. I didn't feel well, but luckily I had chosen to run the Richmond Marathon, which is known as America's Friendliest Marathon. No joke, all along the 26.2 miles, there are block parties, bands playing, strangers cheering, handing out all manner of refreshment, donuts included, and plenty of people holding signs. Takes your mind off of the pain. These aren't just spectators, they're encouragers. And that's what we need in our Christian life. Someone to believe in us, someone to cheer us on, to keep us going. This is Paul's role for the church at Philippi. He's a, a cheerleader, a great encourager. He's their biggest fan. At the beginning of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, he writes to them the following words. He writes, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul as in many of the epistles, the letters of the New Testament is writing to encourage Christians. He's thankful for them, he's joyful because of their growth, and he's confident that God is at work. I wonder when we think about our own growth and maturity, are we thankful, joyful, and confident? Maybe not as much as Paul is. This morning, let's look together at three questions. You can find a few notes on the back page of your service leaflet, uh, but you'll also find uh, that 
the sermon has adjusted since the sermon leaflets were printed, so you can follow along. The three questions, why do we want to grow? Where do we need to grow? And who is responsible for our growth? Now, experts will tell you that good goals, good goal setting, uh, can follow the acronym SMART. Goals should be specific, measurable, assignable, realistic, and time sensitive. If we think about our maturity, it probably seems anything but that. It seems vague, it maybe seems prolonged, hard to measure, hard to know if we're making progress, or as author Eugene Peterson puts it, it might feel like a long obedience in the same direction, much like a long race. And in a long race, at least for amateurs like myself, taking specific measurements while you're running, like checking your pulse or checking your splits, doesn't actually encourage you. Keep in mind I said that's for amateurs like me. Sometimes it can actually discourage you. It's more helpful, more helpful than the right measurements is having the right motivation. I think motivation is probably the reason why most New Year's resolutions fall flat, that we don't have the right motivation to keep us going, to encourage us on course. Paul, in the first verse of Philippians 2, addresses our first question of why do we want to grow? He tells us what our motivation should be. Look down at verse 1. He writes, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, or any affection and sympathy. In other words, if you want to grow, reflect on what you've already experienced in the Christian life. Where in your life have you been encouraged? Where have you felt comforted, loved? Where have you grown in sympathy or affection for others? Where have you experienced fellowship in God's spirit with other Christians? As Thanksgiving season uh, is upon us, now is a great time to join with Paul in thanksgiving for those things. This is a great, simple way to think about maturity, that if you have tasted any of these good things in your Christian life, then Paul says simply, desire more, that we should, we should complete his joy, that we should fill up on these things. Psalm 34, verse 8 reads, taste and see that the Lord is good. So the first step is to taste to partake, to take part in, to experience what God has, and when you have tasted, to continue. Or as Eugene Peterson writes in the message, this is paraphrasing 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, you've had a taste of God. Now like infants at the breast, drink deep of God's pure kindness. Then you'll grow up mature and whole in God. Taste and see, and then desire more. The verb at the very beginning of the second verse uh, is, is translated as complete or as fill up. It's like you've had an appetizer, but there's a real full meal coming that we should fill up on. Regardless of where you are in your Christian walk, whatever stage, consider yourself as having just had the appetizer and ready to fill up on the meal that God has in store for you. Let's turn to our second question. Where do we need to grow? Or what should we desire more 
of. Look down at verses two through five and you'll find Paul's first recommendation. We should desire more unity. Paul writes, make my joy complete or complete my joy. In other words, nothing would make Paul happier if the Philippians or if you and I would be united. We know for the Philippians that this is at least in part because there was division among them. He covers this at the end of chapter one. And in chapter two, Paul lists these good things that lead to unity. You'll see he lists having the same mind, the same love, being in full accord, being of one mind or one thinking. And then he goes on in verses three and four to give us three negatives to avoid and three positives that will help us in our unity. He's emphasizing that we should take our unity more seriously than we take ourselves. Unity both with other Christians, but also, as you can see in verse five, that unity is to be rooted in Christ. He emphasizes our thinking. He says, being of the same mind and of one mind. And that's because thought is the root of action. Paul writes in Romans that we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And the way that we do that, according to Paul in verse five, is that we seek to have the mind of Christ. Verse five is actually an imperative, a command, because Paul is saying, unless, unless you are united in Christ together, then you won't be able to overcome the divisions that you're experiencing between yourselves. That is the true path to unity. In Psalm 81, the psalmist says about those who look to God, he writes, open your mouth wide and God will fill it. But then he writes of those who don't listen to God, he writes that they are left to follow their own imaginations. Think about those two pictures. One who is opening their mouth wide, filling up on what God has to them. And the other who is instead just turning inward to their own thoughts, their own imaginations that bounce around in their mind. And I want you to think about how many times, maybe even this week, you've let a thought bounce around in your own mind until you've decided that it's true, that you've come to believe it. Without, without testing that, without uh, bouncing it off other people, without bringing it before God. We can quickly fall into expert mode when our thoughts just live in our own head. This was a problem for the Corinthian church and Paul wrote to them the following. He wrote, learn not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor or one, of one against another. In other words, when it comes to our Christian faith, if we let our imagination run wild, our own thoughts take over about what we think uh, God is up to about what it says in scripture, we're oft faced with division. And so Paul's simple recommendation is to not go beyond what is written, to be anchored in unity in God's word. Let's turn to our second area of growth. We should desire more humility. 
Look back at verses three and four and the, the negatives and the positives that Paul lists. He lists selfish ambition, conceit, looking not only to your own, looking only to your own interests, and positively, humility, counting others more significant than yourself, looking to others' interests. Now, in our context, and this has been true probably for the last hundred years or so, we would often think that too low a view of yourself can lead to the sin and evil that we see in our world. But for most of time, and certainly before the 20th century, the belief of, of most people was that if you had too high a view of yourself, that was actually the root of sin and evil in the world. In other words, pride is the root of sin and evil. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has a great chapter on selfish ambition. He writes, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than themselves. Lest you think I was too proud in mentioning my run yesterday, I went for one mile, I was tired, and when I got back home, I saw on Instagram that a seven-year-old who's a member of our church ran a 5K yesterday. <laughs> a good, healthy dose of humility. C.S. Lewis continues, and he writes about how you know humility. Would, would you know somebody who is humble when you saw them? And he says this, he says, if you really met a humble man, he wouldn't be a sort of greasy, smarmy person. Probably all you'd think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said. If you do dislike him, it would be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He won't be thinking about humility. He won't even be thinking of himself at all. It's what Tim Keller calls self-forgetfulness. Or, to quote another pastor here in the, the common Rolodex of pastoral quotations here, Rick Warren writes, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So how do we do this? How do we grow in humility? It's interesting that scripture commands us to be humble. It doesn't actually tell us to pray for humility. And humility is not something that we can really strive after, right? If we are focused on being so humble, we're actually just focused on ourselves. So two practical suggestions borrowed from a, a book titled Humility, but written uh, in the late 1800s with some practical advice. First, understand that it is not sin that necessarily leads to humility, but reflecting on God's grace. Too much focus on your own sin leads you to wallow in guilt, but receiving God's grace frees you not just to be focused on yourself, but to think how you will share that grace with others. Secondly, humility is the displacement of the self by the enthronement of God. Sounds good for Christ the King Sunday. Jesus should be on the throne, on the throne of the universe 
but also on the throne of our lives, of our decisions. And it's because he was exalted, exalted with the name above every name, but first exalted on the cross. And that is Paul's main illustration. It's the bulk of our reading this morning, verses 6 through 11, where Paul turns and he shares this beautiful quotation about Jesus on the cross. It's actually our third area of growth that he recommends, that we should desire more conformity to Jesus. If I know that this doesn't appear this way as it's printed in your bulletin, but if you were to read this section of Philippians in uh, a Bible, I don't think we have them in the pews right now for obvious reasons, but you would see that verses 6 through 11 would be offset like poetry. And it's because that scholars actually think that verses 6 through 11 are part of one of the first hymns that the church sung in praise of Jesus. It's interesting that Paul turns to a hymn. I think that's because hymns and praising God actually have a a formative effect on us and on our humility. Paul writes that we should be conformed to the image of the Son. And one way that we do this is to praise, to worship. Now let's look at at the content of this hymn. Look down at verse 6 and 7. You see in verse 6 it says that Jesus was of the same form or the same being as God. And it continues that he was, he was equal with God. He was the same place in the hierarchy. But notice as it continues that Jesus did not try to outrank God. He instead submitted himself to God's will, to God's work. And there's this great phrase in verse 7, which says that he emptied himself. Now, normally we would think of emptying as being subtraction, as being taking away something. But look how it continues. It's not that he just emptied himself. He then took on something. With Jesus, it's not subtraction, it's addition. He takes on the nature of a servant. Humility isn't meant to be just some self-flagellation or self-denial. It's meant to be a taking on of new purposes and roles which displace the focus on ourself. Look back at at verse 3 and our list of warnings from Paul. He lists selfish ambition and conceit. That word for conceit in Greek is uh, kinodoxia, meaning literally empty glory. So we know like the doxology glory, so empty glory. And one commentator writes, the Philippians were being told not to puff themselves up with empty glory because Jesus had emptied himself of his glory. So consider what new roles and purposes God has given you. I'm not going to rehash last week's sermon and make you make a list of the roles and purposes in your life, but consider what roles of service and servanthood you've been given in your life. Reflecting on Jesus's role, Tim Keller writes, Jesus came as a poor man to a family at the bottom of the social order. 
He experienced death at the hands of those using their power unjustly to oppress. In Jesus, we see God laying aside his privilege and power, his glory, in order to identify with the weak and the helpless, as we see in Philippians 2. Then he was raised to even greater honor and authority to rule. Jesus takes authority, but only after losing it, in service to the weak and helpless. There's a, a dynamic attention between authority and vulnerability. If we have too much authority, then that can lead to oppression, to exploitation. If we have too much vulnerability, that can lead to just suffering. But in Jesus, as a model for us on the cross, we have authority, not just given up and laid to the side, but authority paired with vulnerability. Our growth and our maturity, I think, has a lot to do with us considering the ways in which we have been given authority and also called to vulnerability, to service, to humility. Now, how about our last question? Why do we want to grow? What areas should we grow in? Who is responsible for our growth? If you look back at our gospel passage, we have this great question that Jesus asks. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? It's the same question facing us. Where does your growth come from? From heaven or from man? Both. Look down at verse 12 and 13 with me. It says that we are to work out our salvation. We are to work at our own growth because faith actually works itself out. This is the, the how of growth, by us playing a part. But then in verse 13, we see the who of growth. It's God. God works. God does it. God initiates as the 1928 Book of Common Prayer puts it, we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. And that's where God comes in. The, the verb for work is energeo, like energy. God energizes, God gives the power. Jesus did not just say, did not say on the cross, I am finished. He said, it is finished. The work on the cross was done, but Jesus' work in you is not done. It continues. And because of that, we can have confidence. We can have confidence to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And if we turn back to the opening part of Philippians, which I read, we can be encouraged that he who began a good work in us, in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.